Good morning, West Shore family and friends who are joining us. We're so glad to be with you in your homes again online today. And trust that as you're gathering to worship the Lord, that his spirit is present with you there. And just would remind you of that promise that God has said that when we gather in his name, where two or three are present in his name, he is there with us. So uh, we trust that now and pray that the, the spirit of God would speak to you through his word. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 21, John 21. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, or don't own one, we, we will put the words on the screen for you. So no worries there, but we're gonna be in John 21 and we have been in a series throughout the gospel of John. And so now we come to the end. We come to our final, uh, final chapter in our study of the gospel of John where we look at the work of Jesus after his resurrection. Now, let me just give you a bit of a recap of what we've seen so far. So up to this point in the gospel of John, I'm not gonna hit it all, but we have seen Jesus turn water to wine. We've seen him declare God's love for the world. We've seen him heal absolutely decimated hearts when we think of the woman at the well in John chapter four. We've seen him make a lame man walk. We've seen him claim equality with God, that he himself is God in the flesh. We've seen him feed 5,000 men, uh, not to mention women and children, from just a few loaves and fish. We have seen him rescue a woman about to be murdered in an unjust way. We've seen him illuminate what it really means to have life and life to the full. We've seen him make a blind man see. We've seen him raise the dead. And we've seen him willingly lay down his life as a payment for our sins. We've seen him be raised from the dead himself. We saw that last week as we celebrated Easter together. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we've seen so far. But I remind you of that as we come now to the gospel of John, to the end of the gospel of John, because in all of that, what Jesus has been doing, he told us in John chapter 20, verse 31, is that he has been sharing with us his works and his words so that in hearing those and seeing them, we might believe that he is the Christ, the son of God. And then in believing we'd have life in his name. So let's remember that that is the purpose of the gospel of John. It's why John wrote everything he did. And it's why Jesus did those things that so we would have life in his name. And so as we come now to this last chapter, John chapter 21, we are supposed to see again, that same invitation to have life in his name. And then also for those of us who have already had, uh, who've received life in his name through faith in him, that we're supposed to see that we are then sent to offer life to others. And I wanna show you what that looks like because as we come to John chapter 21 now, he gives us one final lesson about what happens when we receive that invitation. And he offers it for the same reason so that we would take up the work that he's given us to do or that we take up his work on our behalf, wherever you are, whether you are in Christ or not in Christ. But here's the thing. Now he wants to do, for those of us who have taken it up, and even those, for those of you who have not taken up life in his name, who haven't believed in him, he wants to show you something that might be more compelling evidence for you to believe in him. Here's what it is. He wants to show us that when we come into life in him and we are his, and then we're serving him, that when we fail him, when we don't serve him faithfully, that he is able to restore us back to two things, but to relationship with him and also not just a relationship with him, but to, to ministry in his name, to serving him. And that's what we're gonna see as we come this week to John 21, where we see the disciples having denied Jesus, having abandoned him at the moment of most crucial need now. The gospel doesn't just end with Jesus' resurrection and the joy that they experience there, but it ends with Jesus doing an intentional work of restoring them. And I find that to be so good. Th these moments are not recorded in the other gospels. And so John has gone out of his way to make sure that he shows us, hey, you 
follower of Jesus, or you who might become a follower of Jesus, look how merciful Jesus is, even when you fail him in the worst possible way. He wants you to see his mercy. He wants you to see his goodness. And I want to show it to you today. So let's read John 21 together. The big idea is that he restores us when we fail him and he restores us to relationship and to ministry. And then we're going to look at five observations about how he does this restoring work when we fail, when we come up short, when we don't honor him the way we should or obey him the way we should. So beginning in verse one, John 21, and we're just going to read the the whole story through the entire chapter, uh, 25 verses. So read with me if you would. It says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught, that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and said, and who had said, sorry, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, well, what about this man? 
Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are all so many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So that's John chapter 21. Thanks for walking through that with me. Now, let me give you a couple of pieces of just kind of get to back up to speed then on, his, on a, our historical context. Remember that when Jesus appeared to the disciples in John chapter 20 and to Mary Magdalene, he said, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. So he was in Jerusalem and he's going up north to Galilee. And so we open chapter 21 and we see the disciples, they're in Galilee, which is to say they've, they've followed the Lord's instruction. He said, go to Galilee. I'll see you there. I'll meet you there. And they've done that. Now, some commentators think that by returning to fishing, Peter and the other disciples are essentially kind of going back to their old way of life. I don't necessarily see that here. I suppose it's possible, but I think really more what's going on is they just, they're they're guys who needed to eat. They had to have something. So they know how to fish and they went fishing and they're waiting for the Lord to show up to do whatever it is he's gonna do next post-resurrection. So they're waiting for that. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. And I want to show you, there's more than five here, but I want to show you five things about this work of restoring that Jesus is doing for all the disciples and then specifically for Peter that I think are so relevant for us in terms of when we fail him, how he then restores us. And sometimes, could I just say church family, we're quick to rush past the need to be restored Uh, the need to to walk with the Lord in a process of restoration when perhaps we have made a misstep or perhaps a gross misstep and moved in a wrong direction. But learning to do that, not just to brush past and to wait on him to do this restoring work in us is pretty pivotal if we're gonna serve him for a long period of time, for a lifetime. The need to understand how God goes about doing this kind of restoring work is so needed for us. So let's point out five. And we're gonna be relatively brief with each one. But there's different elements of the story that help us see uh, different things. So the first thing that we need to point out is number one, he is eager to restore us to himself. I, I wanna point out his eagerness to do that. Now, here's why I say he's eager. This story is clearly about his work in restoring the disciples and in specifically kind of like a, a zoomed in up close with Peter, given Peter's threefold denial of him uh, at the point of his trial. But here's what I want you to recognize. There's a challenge here because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. So this was spoken to the, to the disciples earlier and not in John's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel. So prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection, here's what, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. In the context of saying, you're gonna be persecuted and don't be afraid. And then he says this as a way of warning. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. So that's great news, right? We acknowledge him, he's gonna acknowledge us. That's meant to be a hope-giving, life-inducing promise. But look at the warning on the backside. But whoever, now verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Now that warning was given to the disciples. And I want you to think about that. The reason he gave them that warning was to teach them not to be afraid. And he's saying, 
look, don't fear people and what they can do to you. You should actually fear the one who is the ultimate judge of all things and all people. And so he's giving them a bit of a warning to encourage them to be steadfast in the face of persecution. Well, now fast forward to John chapter 19 and 20 and 21. And what we've seen is that the disciples absolutely denied Jesus before men. So how do we bring those two things together? How do we bring together the idea that in John 21, he's restoring them. But in Matthew chapter 10, he had said, if you deny me, then I'll deny you. And of course, the answer to that question is Jesus is so eager to restore them that he is bringing them out of their denial and into repentance. In other words, the point is this. The point is not deny Jesus one time and that's it. You're done. And there's no hope for you. You are now sentenced to separation from God. He's going to deny you before the father when you arrive for judgment on the judgment day. That's not what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10. He's saying, if you persist in denial, then you will be denied before the father by me. But we have this great hope of John 21 that shows how eager Jesus is in spite of that warning. And in spite of all the rejections, think about the rejections that the disciples uh, committed when towards Jesus in the moment of his trial, they rejected their friendship with him, denied knowing him. They rejected his lordship over them and obedience to him. In other words, he rightly, they rightly owed him their obedience and he, they didn't give it to him. They denied his lordship over them and his friendship. And it's thing after thing that we see the disciples are denying and pushing away from Jesus. And so it's a, it's a massive failure. And I'm so glad for John 21 because of the threat of Matthew chapter 10. It reminds us that if we don't persist in denial of Jesus, but repent from it and turn around and confess that, yes, I I denied you. I was unfaithful to you. That Jesus is eager to then bring us into restored fellowship with him and restored ministry in his name. So the main thing I want you to see there in point one is the eagerness of Jesus to do this. When you fail him, When I fail him, he's eager to restore us. Don't persist in the denial of Jesus with your actions or with your words. Don't persist in it, but surrender to him and say, I need to be restored. Recognize with repentance your need to be restored and come to him. He's eager to restore you the way he was eager to restore the disciples. And I would just, I would just put this, how great is his mercy? How great is the mercy of our Lord? having been denied and rejected and crucified, that he would restore those who come to him to seek to be restored. So that's point number one that we see in this text. And I just, I needed you to see that Matthew 10 versus John 21 sort of juxtaposition, bringing the two together. Now look at number two. Here's the second thing we see about the restoring work of Jesus. And it's this, none of these are complex, y'all. Number two is this, he reminds us that he called us. So this whole scene by the Sea of Galilee is meant to sort of remind us, if we've read through the gospels before, what should immediately come into our mind is Luke chapter five. And in Luke chapter five, when Jesus is calling the disciples for the first time, Andrew and Peter and James and John in particular, but when he's calling them, they're fishing and they haven't caught anything. And he says to them, have you caught anything? And they say, no. And so he's, he sits down, he teaches in Peter's boat for a little while. Then they go out to sea and he says, go ahead and cast your nets and and Peter says, well, we, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But because you tell me to, I will. And if you remember what happens, they haul in a huge load of fish. 
And so the repetition of almost verbatim the story, Jesus shows up on the beach, they're out there, says, did you catch anything? No, again, they haven't caught anything. The parallels are really close together. And he says, well, go ahead and cast your net on the right side of the boat. And they do, and they pull in this huge haul of fish. And John goes out of his way to even give us a number of them. This is one of those kind of funny moments in the gospel of John. Like he, somebody counted them, right? There's 153 of them. That's a lot of fish. And so they've pulled in this huge catch. Now here's the point of all that. In those parallels, what John wants us to see is that he's reminding them of the moment of their calling. He's taking them back in their minds, in their hearts to when he called them. Now, remember, he he has them catch the fish. Did you catch what happened when they got on shore? Jesus already had fish cooking. Like it was already on the grill. There was no need. Jesus didn't need the food that they were providing. It's not as if Jesus said, I need some breakfast. So I'll have them catch the fish and bring them in, right? He just says, cast your nets because he wants them to remember what had happened in Luke chapter five, when he had called them. Now in Luke chapter five, uh, we'll get to this in a minute. Actually, let me, let me, I was about to go somewhere. I didn't need to go yet because it's going to be point number three. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. All right, y'all know I have a tendency to do that. So here's the deal. He doesn't need the fish. He's reminding them of their calling. Here's the two things that I think are so important to see then. He wants them to remember that he chose them, not the other way around. They didn't choose him. He chose, them. remember John chapter 15, verse 16, when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We saw that earlier in the gospel of John. Well, he's reminding them of the moment that he chose them. I don't know if you've had this experience of being called by God to something. I believe every, obviously you are, if you're in Christ, you're called by him to make disciples. You're called to be with him, to be his, to be his son, to be his daughter. So I hope you're experiencing the reality of that calling. But also there are specific callings that'll bring into your life. Moments of types of ministry that he's calling you to, things that he's inviting you to take up in his name. And my hope is that you've experienced that. You've understood what your gifts are, your spiritual gifts that have been parted to you by the Holy Spirit. And then understanding those, then you've had a sense, okay, God has invited me into this kind of work. And this is what I'm made and crafted by him to do for his kingdom. And as you've done that, I don't know if you've had the experience of in moments of failure, in that calling of being reminded that in fact, it's him who called you. He's the one who called you. You didn't choose this calling. He chose it for you. And then the second thing that I want you to see here, he wants them to see that he chose them. That's why he's reminding them of their calling, I think. And then the second thing is that their call to serve him, to in his name, to minister in his name, that call is not revoked by their failure if they will turn. That calling is not revoked by their failure. Now, let me, let me make a little caveat here. And I don't wanna undo what I've just said, but I do wanna remind us that there is the reality that that if we choose to walk in certain patterns of sin, it may be possible that there are certain ministries to which we cannot return. That may be true because of um, it's not compatible with the, the temptations that would be available to us were we to return to that ministry. And so God might move us into different ministries. When I say our ministry is not revoked, it may be a different type of ministry that God moves us into. It very well may, may be that we can return to the same ministry, but it will take a long time to be restored. Don't imagine that restoration happens overnight. Restoration out of a pattern of sin and into righteousness, it takes time. It takes steadfastness. It takes self-control. It takes submitting to authority again and again. Remember what uh, Paul says when, he talk about, when he's talking about the qualifications of elders. And I know that's a specific type of ministry calling, but when he's talking about that, one of the things that he says, is they have to have a good reputation with outsiders. So the idea that someone might uh, defame the name of Christ 
then with outsiders, those who are outside the church might make it so that they're not able to return, at least not in the short term, to the very same ministry that they've left. But in, in all of that, knowing that there's, that there's a, a great deal of wisdom and discernment needed in terms of being restored into ministry that we've been called to, the thing I really want you to see though, is that there is the possibility of being restored to ministry even when you fail in massive ways like the disciples. Your failure does not revoke your call to serve God. And I think that's so pivotal and important. When I was, uh, now I know that uh, I'm gonna use pastoral ministry as an example here because it's, it's my own life experience. And I know this is not the majority of us, okay? Um, but I can, but some of the things related to calling, I think fit for all of us. So when I was trying to discern what God was calling me to do, I was 19 years old and I, I spent two and a half years praying and having conversations and trying to discern. It took a long, well, what felt like at the time, a long time for me to discern what God had, was calling me to do uh, in service to him in his kingdom. And in, in seeking that out, uh, I, I prayed a lot. I waited a lot. I tried a lot of different, I tried my hand at a lot of different ministry to see what might fit and what God might've made me to do. And ultimately concluded that I had a call to be a pastor. And I'll tell you, it was worth every minute of those two and a half years. And do you know why? At the end of those two and a half years, I went to my parents and I said to them, I believe that I'm called to be a pastor. I think I've even told you all this before. I believe I'm called to be a pastor. Do you know what my parents' response was? Oh, we've known that since you were five. Which I found to be like, hey, how about a little help, right? Like, how about cluing somebody in? But the reality was they knew that I needed to parse out that calling with the Lord and they couldn't impart that to me. But I'm so thankful for every moment of it because do you know that... Big failures, small failures in serving Christ in my own life, whether, and, and we have all failed in serving him and being faithful to him. In those moments of failure, do you know that I remember so much, so often I'm taken back to the first moment of my calling, to those two and a half years, where for me, it wasn't just a moment, but it was, it was a long process. But I'm taken back to those two and a half years again and again. And you know what I'm reminded of, what the Lord reminds me of? You didn't choose me or this, I chose you. I'm so glad for that because it reminds me that I didn't just pick this up because I wanted to do it. I think the same is true for you, friends. When you have a calling from God, he chooses you for it. You don't choose it yourself. Now you say yes to it and choose it in that sense, of course. You respond with a yes, Lord. But you don't really choose it. You're chosen for it. When that happens, when that takes place, there's great confidence that God will restore you to the work to which he's called you. So, that's the first thing. Now let's go to, oh, sorry, I guess that's the second thing I should say. So he reminds us that he called us. He's eager to restore us. So let's look at point number three. The third thing that we see in this text about Jesus' restoring work is that he shows us how effective we can still be for him. He shows us how effective we can still be for him. So there's this tendency to believe that when I've failed, when I've fallen, that perhaps I can never be effective uh, as effective as I was before again. And like I said, there may be certain ministries that we're not enabled to return to because wisdom wouldn't, uh, wouldn't call for it. But I want, to, I want us to see how effective we can still be. And there's a little detail in the story that I think clues us into this. Now go back to what I said in Luke chapter five, the parallels between those two stories. The, the interesting thing, the, the thing that does not parallel between those two stories, and I really believe John is highlighting this because he didn't need to say it, but he does say it. And I think it's very intentional. In Luke chapter five, when they haul in the huge load of fish upon Jesus' original calling in their life, the nets begin to break and they make a point of telling us that. Now, when, 
When the gospel writers, when Luke and Mark are telling us about this initial calling and those nets beginning to break, essentially there's a symbolic element to that. What they're saying to us is the disciples have been catching fish and they're catching so many now that Jesus is making them fruitful that essentially what Jesus is saying is, you've got a new type of fish you're gonna go catch. And, and you may remember that he says to them, I'm gonna make you now what? Fishers of men, right? So he's saying the nets that you have right now are not the kind of nets you need for the work that you're gonna do. And in fact, they're not gonna be able to hold the fullness of what I'm gonna do through you. So you need a new kind of net, essentially, is what the gospel writer is telling us, what Jesus is telling us when their nets are breaking. Did you notice what happens in this story? In John 21, they catch the fish and it says, even though it was a massive haul of fish, what happened? Their nets did not break. He makes a point of telling us that. Now, here's what I think, here's what I think John is up to by letting us know that the nets didn't break. One, I don't think therefore that he's indicting them for returning to fishing as if they were trying to return to their old way of life. Otherwise, I think he probably would have returned to, returned to the nets breaking or Jesus would have allowed the nets to break, but they don't. And so I think that what John is getting at there is that, uh, that, the net's not breaking, he is able to say, you can still like in this new calling of being fishers of men, this new calling of serving me, I'm gonna make you really fruitful and your nets aren't gonna break. You're gonna have everything that you need. You're going to be effective in my calling in spite of the fact that you have failed so massively. I think that's deeply important that we remember that we're not sentenced to a life of second-class service of Christ when we've failed but that he can restore us so fully and so completely and perhaps even make us even more effective. Here's the goodness of Jesus, that he can take our very failure and turn it into the thing that causes us to be even more effective in his name. And again, this, de this depends upon our repentance, our humility, our willingness to surrender ourselves to the Lord, to come underneath the authority of those God places in our life. But where we're willing to do this, his restorative work is so powerful and so profound that you are not sentenced then to be ineffective. You, I can still serve him, but I'm never gonna be that effective in it. No, there's an effective ministry that is made available to you in his mercy and his restoring work. Now, why can he be certain of this? And why is that? I mean, yes, I know Jesus knows everything. Therefore he can be certain of it. But can I tell you another reason why Jesus can be so certain of making us incredibly effective after he's restored us. It's because he's the one that does the work through us. He's the one doing the work through them and he's the one doing the work through us. It doesn't depend upon us, but him. Now, here's where I get that from the story. And I already alluded to it. When they show up on the shore, it's so interesting that Jesus already has fish cooking and bread right there available. And then he does what? He invites them to add their fish to the meal. He says, come and, and add yours in. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't need you to provide for me. I'm the one who provides for you. I'm the one who multiplies fish and loaves. I'm not the one in need of anything from any hand. And yet, so he's saying that by having the fish already there, already provided. And yet then what does he do? He says, bring yours, bring your fish. That by the way, why did they catch the fish? Because he provided the fish. He provided them in the sea. He provided them on the land. It's all him. He's the one doing it. He did it through their hands in the sea. We don't know where the fish came from that he already had, but he had them. And so he's saying to them, look, I can, I can make you effective in ministry, I promise you, because ultimately it doesn't depend on you. It depends on me. I'm the one who provides. I'm the one who works. So let me offer this thought then. When you fail Jesus, you're not sentenced to a life of ineffective work in his name. 
So here, what do we do then? We listen for the spirit. All these things I've just said, the first, the first three things now are all about really effective ministry. Uh, and I want to turn our attention then to relationship here now. But, but just, if I can encourage you, none of these things are things you can make happen. When you've failed, when you've fallen, when you've denied the Lord, you turn in repentance. And then my encouragement to you is to listen. If this is how Jesus restores, then our work is to listen for the spirit of God who is in us and does not leave us. Listen for the spirit of God to speak those things to us. So friends, that requires stillness, requires patience. It requires waiting on the Lord. It requires a hunger for his word, lingering in his word and in his presence and asking his spirit to affirm these things to you, meditating on truths like we find in this text. So my encouragement to you is when you have failed, listen for the spirit to remind you of your calling. Listen to the spirit to affirm how eager he is to restore you into Christ and listen for the spirit to speak to you about the effectiveness that he may still bring to you if you will walk with him. I just want to say to you, friends, like I think marriage is a great illustration for this. When we failed in a marriage, don't you know that Christ can redeem that and restore it and make it even better than it was before? You may even have an out scripturally of a marriage where someone's been unfaithful. But do you know what is so God glorifying is when a marriage is restored through the worst kinds of sin, through the worst kinds of difficulty. And Jesus is able to do that if husbands and wives will turn in repentance and receive his restoring work. He will bring it about. Fourth thing that we see here about the restoring work of Jesus is that he shows us he doesn't just want us to get work done for him. Now, this is where we turn to the relational restoration here. And this is the most important type because all ministry, all service is done out of an overflow of love for Christ. And so he wants to seize our moments of failure and use them to turn our hearts in greater love towards him, that we would experience his mercy, experience his grace and fall so much more deeply in love with him. Uh, trust in him so much more deeply that we wouldn't be tempted to walk down that pathway again. And also in doing that, that we would see that he delights to know us and to have us, not just to have us serve him, but to have us ourselves with him. Notice a couple things in this text where we kind of derive that idea from. The first is that he invites them to sit down for a meal. And I think that's really telling, right? Jesus is on the beach. They bring in the load of fish and he has them sit down for a meal. This is supposed to evoke memories of the last supper, which happened just a few chapters before, right? Where Jesus said to them at the last supper, I no longer call you servants or slaves because a servant or a slave doesn't know what his master's up to. Like I've told you what I'm up to. And because I've told you what I'm up to, I now call you what? Does anybody remember? Friends, I call you friends. And so when he sits down over another meal with them, this is now the, the, the very next meal he eats with them after the last supper is this one. And it's, if he's, it's as if he's reminding them, you remember that meal that we had together before I went to the cross? Let me remind you again that I love to break bread with you, that I'm your friend. I delight to be with you. I'm not just restoring you to ministry in my name. I'm restoring you to relationship with me because I love you and I care for you. And Jesus does the same for us. The second thing that we see in this text is, Recognize that when, when Jesus asked Peter these questions and Peter's grieved, which we're going to talk a little bit more in the, in the fifth and last point, when that happens, the question is not, will you serve me? Will you serve me? Will you serve me? What's the question? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? In other words, it's a relational question. He's asking Peter about the relationship that they have with one another. And he's in a sense, when he's saying, do you love me? He's affirming to him, I love you. Now, do you love me? And he's obviously giving him a chance to restore what he had broken when he had three times denied Jesus. Now he three times can claim relationship with him. So this is the most important, as I said, of the two restorations, because we can't do work in his name without closeness to him. Work done with power always comes from overflowing love for Jesus and overflowing knowledge of Jesus' love for us. So when we're in need of restoration, we don't rush back into work, but we sit with him to receive his love. And I just want to encourage you. That goes back to what I just said. When you're in need of restoration, don't be foolish. Don't rush back into work in the name of Jesus. Sit with him, wait, and see what he would do. All right, fifth and final point here. He shows us our failure to break us of our self-reliance. This is the last thing that we see here. He shows us our failure to break us of our self-reliance. Those questions that he asks of Peter three times, we hear at the end, it grieved Peter that Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus is intentionally bringing Peter to the end of himself. I don't know if you noticed the first time he asked, do you love me more than these? And I don't think that Peter is saying, yes, I love you more than these. I think he's saying, yes, Lord, I love you. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 26, if you've read this, Peter is so self-assured. When Jesus says, you'll betray me, Peter says, no, I'll never betray you. And if I have to die with you, if everyone else leaves you and forsakes you, I will not leave you or forsake you. He's so certain of his faithfulness. He's so certain of his strength. And what he finds is that he is exactly the opposite. What a broken moment that would have been, yes? What a deep moment of brokenness that would have been to realize how flawed he truly was. And now when Jesus is restoring him, Jesus is asking, do you love me? And the first time he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And, and he gives him a command. And then he says again, do you love me? And Peter says again, you know that I love you. But look at what he says the last time. Do you love me? Jesus says, he says, you know everything. In other words, Peter is done depending upon his own statements of his own sort of confidence of his strength and the strength of his love and his even knowing of his own heart, right? He says, Lord, you know, Lord, you know, Lord, you know everything. In other words, there's a posture of complete surrender before the Lord because Peter's completely broken. He has no more confidence in himself. He doesn't rely on himself anymore as if to say, yes, I know that in my strength, I will serve you. I know that in my strength, I will be faithful to you. What's he saying? It has to be you. You know everything. You know that I love you. In other words, he's stating what he feels to be the truth of his heart, but also saying, Lord, you're the one that sees my heart. You know you and you alone. What a good reminder to us. Now, here's what Jesus is doing to bring restoration. Restoration is not going to be easy when we're in need of it. It's not just sort of all sunshine and rainbows, right? But there's this, there's this very real way in which Jesus goes, I need to bring you to the end of yourself. I need to break you so that you would not rely on yourself anymore. That's a part of the restoration process. It's a hard one, but it's a necessary one. With each answer, Peter moves deeper into trusting the Lord. Almost knocked over my notes there, guys. Sorry. So there will be tough moments coming face to face with our failure in order to be restored. They are meant to take away our self-reliance. So when you're being restored, just remember this. When you're in the midst of failure and you're in need of restoration, choose humility and dependence at every turn. Always stop short of claiming that you will be faithful, counting on your own strength to carry you forward. That's 
probably what got you into the mess in the first place. So often our failure comes from our dependence upon our own strength to serve the Lord and to be faithful. But when we learn that it's completely him, it has to be completely him. That's when we're on a pathway to power and true restoration and, and work in the Lord that has longevity. It's a hard path to walk. So here's, here's kind of final remarks on the gospel of John. We've come to the end now of the gospel. And here's my hopes, three hopes. I hope that you have seen all of Jesus' works and his words as an invitation to believe if you don't believe. I hope and pray if you've been with us through this whole series or if you're just watching for the first time today, I hope that you see that he is inviting you to believe and have life in his name. This is just one example. He's restoring power. It's one example of his mercy and love and goodness. I hope for those of you who believe that you have seen all of Jesus' works and his words as an invitation to take up the role that he is giving you in his work. You are invited not just to become his, but you are invited to work in his name, to be sent by him. And I hope as we've gone through this gospel, you have seen all of those works and all of those words that John has recorded for us. And that in seeing them, you have said, I wanna serve him faithfully all my days. And then lastly, I hope today, today specifically, that you have seen his power and his mercy to restore you to himself when you fail. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, this gospel of John. Thank you for the wisdom and the power the truth of it. Pray that you'd help us to see it. Give us eyes to see, Lord Jesus. We thank you for a morning gathered in front of our TVs or computers or wherever we may be, worshiping you, hearing your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now take it, plant it in our hearts. May you find good soil there and that that word would plant itself in us and grow and produce a harvest of faithfulness and righteousness and justice joy and peace. Pray for my church family. Lord Jesus, that today you'd meet them right where they are. That they would love you more, love you first, love you most. You'd watch over them, protect them and keep them. Fill them with courage and trust. Restore those in need of restoration. Bring us to repentance where we're in need. Thank you for your gentleness and your kindness and your wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's close together the final song of worship.
Well, church family, it was good to be in your homes again today. Just thanks for worshiping with us. We pray that uh, the Spirit of God leads you and guides you. Now receive the benediction from Psalm 51. In verse 10, find these words, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. and Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Go in peace and in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll gather again next week and we'll look forward to seeing you then.